0: The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And this guy today I want you to meet. I was so excited when I started reading about him and I contacted him and I said, wow, a modern day renaissance man so I'm gonna have to read this because Dr. Chris Stout was deemed an international rock star by the American Psychological Association I can't wait to ask him what the hell that means that's great he's a clinical psychologist he's a philanthropist he's the founder of the Center for Global Initiatives He's the Vice President of Research and Data Analytics for ATI. Dr. Chris Stout has done everything from helping organizations succeed to being a best-selling author, speaker, to founding a kindergarten for orphaned children in Tanzania. Oh, what am I gonna do today? I think I'm gonna open an orphanage in Tanzania. Chris, welcome to Exploring Different Brains.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Hackey. It's great to be here.
0: Let me tell you, this is a big honor for me, it's not often I even hear of people like you. It's like amazing, all this stuff.
1: Well, you're very kind. I mean, it it takes one to know one, my friend.
0: You're you're too kind. Um, Now why don't you introduce yourself to our audience the way you
1: would? Well, thank you. It's good to be on your show. Um, I, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, 30-some-odd uh, years ago. Um, prior to that, I um, also have a undergrad degree in architecture and kind of um, came from very humble upbringing. Um, divorced folks, lived with my mom first part of my childhood uh, in urban Dallas and lived with my dad uh, second half of my uh, childhood and adolescence on a rural farm. And I think sort of all those things maybe kind of came together to um, teach me a lot of different kinds of things, but uh, certainly gave me a an interest in winding up in psychology and then looking to see how I can apply psychology from the clinical side, the humanitarian side, and the research side to various and sundry kinds of problems.
0: So, at what point did you realize that it's all about the brain?
1: Gosh, um, probably in undergrad. Um, Uh, the classes that I took uh, had a, um, uh, you know, like the traditional kinds of things. You'd learn Freudian, you'd learn Jungian, you'd learn behavioral, you'd learn this and that, Skinner and whatnot. But I took a comparative psychology course where we um, actually ablated different parts of rats' brains and saw what kinds of impacts that that had. And then I really sort of had this appreciation of the the mind-body interconnection. And looking at how, um, I I remember this wonderful cartoon that said nature, nurture, or anybody's gifts. (laughs) I always felt it was sort of a a combination of those kinds of things, because regardless of upbringing, regardless of conditioning, there's still always going to be the impact of systems and the brain, obviously, in that instance, upon how people process information, upon how people emotionally experience things, and how they develop their relationships.
0: Tell me your impression based on what you just said of the gut brain connection.
1: Well, I I am uh feeling like I'm kind of on a trajectory of getting education uh, about that a lot more than I used to. Um, I was at a conference last year and learned for the first time, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I never heard this in graduate school, um, that um, like something like in the neighborhood of 80% of serotonins produced in the gut, <laughs> you know. I always sort of presumed it was uh, not, not in the gut, of any if anywhere, so um, and I've been reading a variety of things just as recently as yesterday um, about the, uh, the impact of the microbiome and impact of uh, diet and impact of uh, probiotics and things like that on managing not just things that people would think like uh, IBD or something, but uh, also uh, psychological and emotional kinds of issues, anxiety. Yeah,
0: I was amazed when I started learning. I interviewed uh, Derek McFabe from up in Canada, who's one of the world's pioneers in gut brain. And it was an amazing journey to start learning about that. How the uh, I think a New York Times article, they quoted my old classmate Tom Insel, who used to be director of the National Institute of Mental Health, as saying, the flora in your gut says more about the wiring of your brain than your genes. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, the fecal transplants, it was a whole amazing thing and then a light went on in my brain that you know what, it's all, all of these factors that many of which you can control really affect the neuroplasticity and your ability to rewire and it's become my opinion which is why I started differentbrains.org that all of these different entities whether you call mental health issues or neurological issues or developmental issues from Alzheimer's to autism and everything in between. uh, All the same tools seem to have a profound effect whether it's uh, exercise, a good plant based kind of diet, socialization the most underrated thing, uh, you know, good relationships and uh, diet, nutrition, activity, socialization, it's not brain surgery but it does affect your brain.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you raise an interesting point, because I think oftentimes in, in graduate programs or medical school that people become very reductionistic. And we like to have real simple, you know, black, white, A, B kinds of uh, relationships. And the it's sort of like the more the, the proverbial cliche of the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. But I, I feel more hopeful to the points that you just made in terms of a more um, interdisciplinary, cross-collaborative kind of perspective of looking at all the, these kinds of body systems. Before, there used to be sort of this dichotomy with psychology was the the non-medical version of psychiatry, and vice versa. And now, I think you know when you look at pediatrics, we look at oncology, you look at uh, gastroenterology, all these kinds of things, we see the the combined effect and impact that it has on behavior and mood.
0: Right. And as an MD, I can tell you I got zero training in that, and I I hope the worm is turning uh, now. Um, Now I'm going to segue here a little bit because uh, on the site for the Center for Global Initiatives, I just want to read this. This caught my eye because the last guy I heard talk like this was a a way back, I took a two week course in Washington DC in orthopedic pathology when I was still in medical school by a guy named Lent Johnson who was a iconoclast. And he was head of the Armed Force Institute of Pathology. And he saw the whole prism of the world like this. I'm quoting from on the site for the center A quote, quote, health is perhaps the most common denominator in a region's potential for success as it is so intertwined with economic sustainability, eradicating poverty, preventing war, mitigating violence, and fostering social prosperity. Can you expound upon that in terms of acceptance of mental health and everything we're talking about here?
1: There is a uh, um, fellow, Jordan Caslow, who is a uh, ophthalmologist, and he was really sort of the inspiration of that perspective on my part. And one of the things that he talked about was looking at this. This is sort of really, again, being holistic in a different way. we talked about just now being holistic and looking at a person as a system. But when you look at cultures and you look at regions and you look at places in the world that are, are hot spots, there are systems as well, too. And oftentimes the socially disenfranchised, the marginalized, the abused, the stigmatized are those that have mental health kinds of issues. Um, oftentimes there's very little empathy, and this this isn't just to developing places, you know, this is, you know, here in North America, you know, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's a, it's a global issue. Some places are more accepting and more open than others. Some people are more accepting and open than others. But I had worked at the United Nations, uh, 1998, 1999, and one of the things that I worked on was the, the aspect of looking at mental health and substance abuse vis-a-vis sustainable development. And sort of the argument or the thesis that I had in that, which relates back to the quote that you very generously used, was uh, that if you if without mental health there is no health, so to speak, that issues of you can be um, the needing this kind of assistance regardless of whatever kind of circumstance you're in. And if you're not getting that, it's going to be hard to be a good parent. It's going to be hard to be a good worker. It's going to be hard to be a good contributor to your community or to your tribe or whatever. And it makes it really, ironically, I think, a, a fundamental aspect of being successful in every other aspect of one's life. Even if you're, you know, biologically, so to speak, or physically fit or healthy, if you, you know, are suffering with debilitating chronic clinical depression, you're not going to be able to go work. You're not going to be able to support a family, things like that. So, so that's the kind of aspect of, of, you know, what that point was trying to get to.
0: What was your inspiration in getting into this whole arena of psychology and brain? And, and also, I don't know if it's related to this, but I suspect it is in your case. How did you expand your circles of concern to include the whole world?
1: Oh gosh, you have good questions. Um... I guess for me, back to grad and, and undergrad, it was just, you know, intellectual curiosity, um, wondering how, how things tick, what makes, uh, you know, if you look at the positive psychology kind of thing, you know, what helps people to be happy and productive and energetic and good partners and, and good parents, etc., um, and the pathology side of it—what you know, what goes haywire? You know, what are the kinds of things that um, could be avoided and prevented? What are the kinds of things that could be mitigated? What are the kinds of things that have opportunity to have clinical impact and improvement on? So, in my line of, of thought, I really can't separate you know the behavioral from the biological, the the emotional from the brain, so to speak. So, again, I just saw that as being very synthetic very interwoven, very part and parcel of, of one another. For the global part of it, I, I, I've written in places um, that I, I kind of refer to myself as being an accidental humanitarian. Uh, kind of a Mr. Magoo, if you will, you know, sort of walking off of one I-beam and fortunately landing on another one. Because I, I, I would love to sit here and tell you, you know, I had this great plan, this great trajectory. It was very linear. I was gonna do A and then B and then C and then D. And It wasn't that way at all. Um, When I started off as a first-year graduate student, I imagined myself as working with adults as outpatients, and by the time I finished, I was working with children as inpatients, so it was a totally different kind of thing because along the line, it was good to have a plan and a trajectory, but I found other things that I found more satisfying and enjoyable and, and good work. The same with the humanitarian sphere. Um, I, through the World Economic Forum and through flying doctors, going on a mission and doing other kinds of things with other people who became friends, um, it just sort of pulled me into that area. I mean, the, 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 honestly, the, the genesis of starting the center was based upon a climb that I had done 15 years earlier in, in Tanzania uh, with a fellow that I met that was working his way through seminary as a porter and he and i kept in touch and one thing led to another he was a friend i wanted to help him out and and one of the results of helping him out was helping to form the um, kindergarten that you mentioned in the intro so i didn't plan that i didn't you know it wasn't on my goals and bucket list it just organically evolved by virtue of having a friend in need and me having some other friends on this state side that were able to be of help
0: so you you have global adhd <laughs> <laughs> and you're
1: and you're a, a dose dot, of OCD probably too. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, you're a dot connector. You connect all the dots and when you meet yes. somebody new, you connect that dot to your already existing universe. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. tremendous. You know, I was very uh, hearing what you said, there used to be this dichotomy between the medical field and the psychological field that The psychologists don't have to know the anatomy and everything. Now, my daughter Rebecca, who's my hero, who's inspired the movies and books and everything, who's 35, um, she, uh, to go along with her discrete math degree from Georgia Tech, she's about halfway or two thirds of the way through her master's in applied psychology. And one of her favorite courses, I don't think existed way back then, which was biopsychology, where you correlate every one of these behaviors to the anatomical centers. And now with the modern scans, you can see them light up and everything, so that, you know, gulf has been crossed now. And now I think there's better communication between a psychologist such as yourself and the organizations and uh, what I hope is going on between them and the MD community and psychiatrists and neuroscientists.
1: Yeah. I think you're right. You're spot on. I mean, there's, I think, a much more appreciation um, with programs and things that are looking at the the impact of neuroscience. Um, there's a, a, I'm not conversant in it at all, I'm just aware of it, that um, looking at neuroscience support for psychoanalytic theory, which I, I think was, you know, sort of revolutionary. And I think your point about... Um, you know kind of make building bridges you know the, if you think about the biopsychosocial aspects I think it gets to your earlier point of the whole you know that role of culture and, and social aspect to it as well and we see psychologists working in medical settings you know elbow to elbow with different kinds of specialists and nurses and whatnots around treating oncology patients etc I just saw a headline in Medscape yesterday that talked about brain imaging and determining who's gonna be a good surgeon I thought, wow, that's, that's an amazing application of that. So uh, I, I think, again, just the more that we start to learn, the more we see maybe creative applications of diagnostic tools and things, the more we're going to, you know, make better decisions and, and be more informed about how to create change.
0: Well, Dr. Chris Stout, you're pretty amazing. Now, you're one of the few people I've met who uh, actually worked in the U.N., What's the biggest thing somebody like me has no clue about the UN?
1: I have an ambivalent love-hate relationship with the UN. Um, I, um, I, I work with a colleague, uh, Harvey Langholtz, who's a social psychologist at the College of William and Mary. And he had a very uh, in-depth relationship with the United Nations. This was back when Madeleine Albright was uh, Secretary of State, and she was kind of his boss while he was there. And there's a, to my, I did not know this, to my uh, surprise, there is a uh, perpetual position at the United Nations for someone in the military, which almost seems a little oxymoronic, but um, He was from what I think is sort of like the kinder kinder and gentler military, which was the Coast Guard. So it seemed very fitting for that. So he and I got together. He had written a book called The Psychology of Peacekeeping. We got together and wrote a book called The Psychology of Diplomacy. And again, the work that I had done was looking at, if in the diplomatic scenario of looking at sustainability, and now this was late 90s, so there weren't millennium goals yet, but now what we see in the millennium goals of the kinds of things where psychology um, and behavioral kinds of issues and mental health kinds of issues can have a seat at the table and have an impact. So those are the positive kinds of things. That's that's my love side of that equation. The, the hates too strong a word, but the, the frustrations is that uh, the United Nations, like a lot of other large bureaucratic uh, complex systems, are very slow to move, Um, there's a lot of politics there as you can imagine as there is in any other kind of large institutional circumstance and it makes it very frustrating for people um, like myself and the colleagues I was working with to feel like you're you know getting you felt like you're making very incremental change it was going in the right direction but it was, you know, you, you become very impatient after a while to try and see the kinds of things that seem so obvious and have great agreement, but the application in terms of being able to make, make significant change um, was a, like a, a Sisyphian, if that's a word, uh, kind of challenge. It just, you know, two steps forward, three steps back.
0: Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, that's a good, good analogy. You know, the analogies to the aircraft carrier taking uh, three months to turn 10 degrees. As the, I used to make that analogy when you know I was an orthopedic surgeon and then started recruiting the best people I could find from around the country and we ultimately ended up with like five offices in three counties and we were acquired by a publicly traded company and I stayed on as CEO for a couple of years but it was amazing that the stuff you could get done as like a PT boat, you know, throw it in reverse, shoot a torpedo. But man, when you get in those big bureaucratic things, it's just going to have to turn and drive you crazy. And and meanwhile, people are suffering and injustices go on and things of that nature.
1: Well, that's, the, you know, one of the things I, we talk about on our website is one of my most inspirational books by a economist. Um, William Easterly, and he's kind of one of my heroes, and he wrote a book kind of playing um, off the um, uh, uh, title of uh, White Man's Burden. And in that book, he talks about the problems of large bureaucratic systems, whatever they might be, to affect change in a quick kind of way, and really supported and fostered the idea of smaller, more agile, more guerrilla, if you will, kinds of um, whatever, NGOs, nonprofits, people working as individuals, people working together in groups to be able to create change. And the proverbial, um, you know, saving that starfish on the beach, you know, as opposed to maybe you can't save all of them, but it, you made a difference in the the impacting the one that you did save.
0: Yeah, care to tell us more about your family and children? And
1: Sure. I'd love to. Um, Uh, My wife, Karen, and I just celebrated our 32nd anniversary, so uh, that's wonderful and great fun. Um, She's also a clinical psychologist. We met in graduate school. Um, I have two children. Uh, My son is 22 years old and finishing up his undergrad in statistics at University of Illinois, and my daughter is 19 and finishing up her sophomore year um, at the uh, business honors program at University of Illinois
0: why don't you tell our audience how they learn more about you how do you get in touch with you what are you some of the places oh, sure. they can go
1: I, I would be happy to be of help uh, probably the easiest portal to a variety of other kinds of links is uh, my website which is simply dr chris no punctuation dot com so just dr dot com and there's a way to uh, put in a thing in there to be able to email me you'll see links to uh, Uh, I blog on LinkedIn, so there'll be links to LinkedIn and people can uh, read about some of the things I do there. Um, I curate a lot of information on LinkedIn, so the kinds of things I was just now talking about. I mean, I did a piece uh, probably about a month and a half ago on biohacking, where I talk a lot about um, biome and and whatnot. Um, So that would probably be the easiest, but once you get in there, then it's kind of a person's choice. I've got a channel on YouTube, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. Um, our center uh, is centerforglobalinitiatives.org. Uh, we have a lot of free tools and resources and downloadable books and chapters there. Um, and I just launched uh, about two months ago um, uh, a, a podcast myself. So uh, it's called Living a Life in Full, and it's on iTunes. And we have a website for that too that you can link in through the uh, drchristout.com site.
0: What is that podcast? about
1: it's it's about everything <laughs> um I, I kind of refer to it as a uh, kind of like a, a podcast magazine so it's things that right now as i guess some uh, number of podcasts start off with it's um i'm interviewing uh colleagues of mine friends of mine that i think have done some amazing kinds of things so um i'm a runner so uh, the very first show is on uh, two physical therapists who, one's a marathoner, the other's an ultramarathoner, and talking about avoiding injury and coming back from injury and how do you even start a, a, a mile run if you've never run before, etc. Um, <clears throat> most recently, this show's not up yet, it's in post-production, but it's a wonderful young man named Colin O'Brady. And Colin is known for um, doing something called Project 7-2. And that means that he has um, climbed the seven summits, the tallest mountain on each uh, continent. I've done three. He's done seven. I did the easy ones, and he's done uh, all of them, the major ones. And then he went, because that wasn't enough, to the North and South Hole. He was the youngest person to do that, and he did them all in 139 days. So I encourage people to, to listen. Not Every every episode might not be someone's cup of tea, but uh, I guarantee you that there's going to be something interesting and definitely inspirational in every episode.
0: Is there anything, Chris, that we did not cover that you'd like to cover or talk about or get information out about to our audience?
1: Um, I, I think you've done a, a good covering of the waterfront. Um, the only thing I would add is just uh, I would encourage people that... Uh, you know, if you have that, that itch that you want to scratch of being helpful or, or contributing or doing something in the world, there's um, a lot of need out there, and I would encourage people to, to not put that off. I used to talk about what I called the pox of the untils. Oftentimes people will wait until they lose five pounds or until they graduate school or until they get divorced or until they get married or until they retire, and then all of a sudden... They've squandered what could be a wonderful, enriched life by virtue of just putting things off. So I would just encourage people to, uh, to get out there, take a first step, try something out. If it works, terrific. Congratulations. If it doesn't try something different and uh, look to resources that are out there um, to be able to help do it. I, it, it part of our, the reason for our center is to say it, it shouldn't be so hard to do good work in the world so part of what we do is to try to take some of that pain in the neck stuff out of it and provide a lot of free resources and tools for people to be able to use.
0: Well Dr. Chris Stout, humanitarian, psychologist, rock star of international psychology, global leader, We thank you so much for spending time here at Different Brains with us.
1: It has been a distinct pleasure, and it's my honor. Thanks so much for having me. Exploring
0: Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.